We'll be in uh, Isaiah 9 this morning, uh, specifically in verses 6 and 7, though I think uh, if you are wanting to dig into this and meditate on, uh, meditate on these words more you, uh, for, for future, would be um, Isaiah 8. I'll be drawing from kind of everything that's in the whole thought there. Isaiah 8, 1 is a little bit of where this starts here. I mean, obviously the whole book of Isaiah is where the whole thing starts, but, uh, but specifically this thought is kind of tied to and an answer to some, some things that are happening over there in Isaiah 8 as well. We'll specifically be in Isaiah 9 verses 6 and 7. I'll read those now and then we'll, uh, we'll kind of talk about it uh, uh, a little bit more. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of, God, the, word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, uh, giving us a little bit of, of background here into, uh, into this, uh, pulling from, as I said, Isaiah 8, um, what's happening in, uh, in, in, in all of Isaiah here? Uh, well, what's happening is that God has yelled at his people a whole awful lot and said, hey guys, this isn't the way that we, what we agreed to, you're not following me, and, uh, and there's going to be some punishment here. Uh, and, and more specifically, right, right here in Isaiah 8, he says, and, uh, and this, this punishment is going to be coming from Assyria. Uh, and we know that this punishment, historically, this is a real thing. It came uh, in the middle of the uh, 8th century B.C. I think that's how you do that uh, backwards. Uh, 8th century, so in the 700s B.C., uh, uh, Tiglath Pileser III, this is just history, came in and then moved, uh, moved the Israelites off into exile, or took over and then moved some of them into exile. So that's where we, that's where we get um, here. Uh, repent or some punishment. That's how the covenant of God works. And so I know that's a, you know, this is great. Right now we're starting at one of the most wonderful, heartfelt Christmas sermons ever. Um, no, the, uh, but this is, this is a, a beautiful thing because, because we're going into this deep darkness. And, and it's amazing as we chug on to chapter 9 of Isaiah uh, that there, there are time and time again that Isaiah is telling us there are things that can change. There are things that can change. He says over in, uh, in, in verses um, 11, he says, the Lord spoke to me, and he said, don't fear what they fear, but verse 13, this is a great one, let the Lord of hosts be your fear, and let him be your dread. Don't worry about what the world is saying, don't worry about uh, what these people think over here, or what they think over there, let the Lord be your fear. That is a very different kind of fear. He says uh, in verse 16 of chapter 8, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching. So how, what happens when the Lord is our fear? What do we do? We bind up the testimony. We seal the teaching. Let the word of the Lord drive your steps. But then we find out as we kind of go through, this is a flyover of chapter 8. Uh, he says uh, in verse 19, he says, so when trouble comes your way, how are you going to solve your problems? Verse 19, when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who, who chirp and mutter, I love that, who chirp and mutter, uh, uh, should not the people inquire of their God? It says, 
Because if you don't ground yourself in the fear of the Lord and you walk in his ways as he has revealed to you, and this is what drives, what guides you in your step toward, uh, toward resolving uncertainty, toward resolving uh, a, a fearful future. He says, if you don't go that way, you're going to be prone to inquire to the mediums, the necromancers, the, the, the wise sage of, of the culture that will give you answers on how to resolve things, that will give you steps forward on how to fix problems, but it won't be from God. And so then he says, to the teaching, to the testimony, but these people, he ends here uh, in a very dark spot, literally, in chapter 8, he says, but the people consistently, you, my people, consistently turn away and you will be cast into darkness. That's where we're at. Oftentimes, we, you know, we get this beautiful picture that we read, you know, at the beginning of, of the sermon, but it's, it, it always is, it's that idea of the good news is not so good if we don't actually understand what the, uh, what the bad news is. And he leads us into this. He, this is the bad news. <laughs> Plain and simple, I revealed myself to you, O people. Plain and simple, I gave you the word of God to guide you. Plain and simple, I told you just do that. But you didn't, so here we are. And that's what God's telling them through Isaiah. And he says, And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness and gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into dark, er, to thick darkness. But then the turn, because even in our waywardness, God is resilient. Chapter 9, verse 1, but there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. And the former time he brought to contempt uh, this land, but in the latter time he made glorious uh, the way of the sea, the Galilee of nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. And then skipping ahead to our, our passage for today. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Even though I revealed myself. Even though I told you. I'm now going to take another step and come down to you. And guide you the right way. I will hold your hand and show you the way everlasting. And I'm going to do it through justice and through righteousness. I read this thing and I think, wow, this is a great passage for 2020. Because good golly, it seems like darkness is all around us. In every level, it seems like there's uncertainty. In every level, we have, we have political, we have, um, we have social, we have, I mean, we've gone through this over and over uh, every week. We have so many areas, financial, we've got so many areas at which it seems like the world is falling apart. And we have to ask ourselves sometimes, is, is this my doing? I do think that when we, when we read through the whole counsel of God, we understand a, a bigger picture. We get a divine perspective uh, uh, from God. We can, we can see that at times, God is taking difficulties in life to, to, to test our faith, to, to mature us, to, to strengthen us. Uh, at times, he takes difficulties and uncertainty, uh, and, and, and he does it kind of in a, uh, in, a, in, a, in a ripple effect. He says, if you do this, uh, this wrong, it will have you know, unintended consequences or maybe intended consequences, but sin spreads, it will ripple out. I think Isaiah right here, though uncomfortable, is helping us by explaining to us and inviting us into this idea that maybe I do own some of the bad around me. Uh, it's so easy to ask God to relieve our situation because someone else put us there. But sometimes we just have to own what's ours. And so that's where I want, to, I, I want to invite you, because these people have done some wrong. Individually, uh, as a people, they've not followed God, they've, 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 they've turned away from Him. 
Um, but regardless of how we think about God deals with all of these sins of, 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 of the Israelites, of the church, of, of whatever, I think we acknowledged already this morning that each one of us has something that we have to take care of with God and with each other. So that is where I want to take us today. I want to look into this today. How is this peace of God so much bigger and better for us? I mean, specifically as my weary 2020 heart is, uh, is, is wondering is, how is the peace of Christ not something that I just wait for him to, to, to reveal? How is the peace of Christ actually for today? How does that help me get through until I get to bed, until I wake up, until I get through my work week? How is the peace of Christ for me now? And so, uh, the urge that I would give you um, is to make peace even while you wait for Christ's peace. So, make peace even in the wait. I'm going to look at this. Uh, for those of you who outline, I've got a sweet little outline for you. Um, the first point is the shape of Christ's peace. We're going to look at what, what actually is Christ's peace. What is the shape of it? The uh, point two is the scope of Christ's peace. What is, what, how far does it extend out? Uh, and, uh, and then the span of Christ's peace is our last point. What is the time marker of Christ's peace? How long will it last? Uh, the shape, the scope, and the span. I got that one. I just, when I was writing the outline, I looked down and said, what would, what would, what would Andrew Hancock do? And I feel like this is one that he would approve this outline here. So this one's for you, man. Um, the shape of Christ's peace. Verse 6, we read, For unto us a child is born, and he will be called the Prince of Peace. The Hebrew word there is shalom, the Prince of Shalom. And that is a much bigger term than we could ever even imagine. Shalom is not simply a, uh, um, a ceasefire. Uh, just that everything's okay. We're not yelling right now, so technically right now there's peace here. That's not what it means. Um, we, 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 we take that idea of peace and sometimes think of like, a peaceful, uh, you know, a peaceful pond or something like that. Nothing's disturbing it right now. Now, that's not, that's not peace that we're talking about here. Shalom, it's this environment, it's this wholeness, it's this reality that is actually here now for us that we access through Jesus Christ, but sometimes we think, oh, this is what, this is what happens after Armageddon. Uh, no, no, this, this can be here today. It's completed there, but it happens here. We see that it's, it's established through justice and holiness, it's, just, it's established through justice and righteousness, and I would throw another one on there, which it would be holiness. Let's, let's look at this. Let's understand this some more because this is a very big deal if we're thinking about the peace of God. In His justice, the Lord deals completely with sin. So this is a big part of it. In the garden, there was shalom. There was this dwelling with God. We're going to see this in Revelation, that this is where we end as well. What happens in the middle? <laughs> a lot of the middle. Uh, where we're at right now is the middle. Is... Uh, is that something must die. We, we read all over the Bible that blood must be shed for sin. Now, this is, this is the bloody sacrifices of all of the Old Testament, all then taken up into Christ, the Lamb of God, who dies, who bleeds for, for the forgiveness of sin. Jesus says it's not simply that things are, 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 are rough between us. He said there is sin that's separating us. And so we don't just want to stop the fight and the hostility. We want to draw near to one another. This is what shalom is. And this must, this is the only way to shalom on this side of sin, which we all have, is the justice of God. Something must be done with it. And God in His mercy, 
executes justice rightly. And he does so fairly. <laughs> and so what does that mean? Uh, getting out of some of that theology. Um, is the downturn in our days is not always reflective on the Lord's punish, uh, is not always reflective on the Lord's punishment. However, however, here it seems as though that idea of justice is at play. The people have done wrong. You and I have done wrong. And the Lord must execute justice. That's everyone, that's where everyone's at. Everyone's fate, everyone's, uh, everyone's uh, reality. But it's not just stopping at justice. We're not just always in this, in this courtroom. We are in one sense, but it's not the only thing we understand. There's a righteousness that's there. There's justice takes care of the sin. Something must be done with the sin. Then we understand that uh, in, uh, where is that, verse 7, he's going to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. We move to this idea of righteousness. God takes care of sin, but he doesn't simply take care of our sin, moving us to shalom. He then does something else in righteousness. He then gives us righteousness. His righteousness is ours. He makes us in right standing. He doesn't just say not guilty. He also says, come draw near. That's a big thing. Otherwise, we'd always, you know, kind of feel guilty all the time. Maybe you do, but you need to understand there's righteousness there. He says, come near to me. You can come near to me. He makes it possible for shalom to happen again. But then I would throw on this other, uh, this other aspect of this that's, that's not here, but it's a logical trajectory of justice and righteousness. It would be holiness. Is that he's moving us even to the spot of holiness as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. As we do this, he's moving us to this spot that one day... There will be no need for atonement of sin. There will be no need for the record of wrongs. There will be no need for this because we will have got to this place when we return, when Christ returns and calls us home, where there will be no, uh, there will be no sinning. We will sin no more there with God because we will have shalom once again. He will restore it once again. He will clean us. He will mend us, and He will restore us to him. This is shalom. This is much bigger than just saying, hey, don't fight. This is much bigger than saying, you offended me, now let's just repent and forgive. It's so much bigger and deeper than that. And I think that's the, that's the thing that is helpful for us today, is if we just long for that day when it is completed, that's helpful to a certain point. But if we don't understand that we're on that path already, that we can, we can learn some of this, that we can watch you know, the, 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 the preview, the trailer, and see, wow, this is this is going to be incredible. I need to tell people about this today. I need to start experiencing this today. It moves us to an embodied sense of shalom. It invites us to walk into the reality that shalom is right here in our midst. Maybe not fully, maybe not complete, but it's at least there and not something to just say, today is rough. How could God ever help me? I just want him to come back. Shalom, in a sense, is an attitude. It's a way. It's a constant posture and a perspective. It's not a distant reality, but rather it's an ever-present way that we can enter through Christ. Jesus gives us an example of this. I'm not just making this. He gives us an example of someone who is sitting in that reality of the shalom of God, the peace of God. The Prince of Peace had peace. It allowed him, in, in one sense, as I was just thinking through examples of this, uh, to remain confident, uh, confidently quiet during uh, the rowdy trial that we find in, in John um, 19. 
So Pilate and Jesus have a conversation, and the Pilate goes out to the people, and the people just start yelling, crucify him. Well, that just that escalated. I don't know how much more it escalated. It was pretty, pretty escalated at that point anyway. And so Pilate comes back, and he's like, okay, this is, this is intense. What are we going to do with this? Like, I, I can help you. And he starts to try and reason with Jesus, but Jesus isn't reasoning back with him. And we read, so Pilate said to him, said to Jesus, you will not speak to me. Do you know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? And with that shalom peace that Jesus had, he just confidently says, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. <laughs> You're not the one that releases me. He's the one that releases me. And how did Jesus get there? Well, he understood this. He knew this. But we know that the night before, he was praying, Lord, your will, not mine. Lord, you've got this. I am going to go however this goes for me. I will do this for your name, knowing that you control the situation. And you have said this must happen. So why would I manipulate Pilate to exercise authority otherwise? What an incredible sense of peace, of shalom Jesus had. And had he not done that, we would not have access to shalom, to the peace that the prince brings us. I've said it, I've heard it said a lot. God's got it. He's working. But we also need to know that he's working maybe not always for our preferred results. I feel like I, I, I draw lines of like, here is how my life is going to be, and I just draw the straight path. I'm very, you know, very kind of uh, anal about that, the straight lines there we go. And then I find that about five you know, seconds in, just the line kind of takes diversions and paths. And sometimes I have to loop back around and, and, and go that way. And that is very unsettling to me. It might not be unsettling to you and whatever we can talk, we can talk about that um, because it's probably you're better than I am on that one. But I just get so bent out of shape when my way gets bent out of shape. That God's got it. I mean, if I were Jesus, I'd be like, dude, what, what, like, I'm going to, let's go with Simon. He says, like, let's draw swords and kill everyone. Let's do that. that that's a great plan, too. Um, but this is the way he has. So he may not always be, uh, be working for our preferred results, but we do know that he's always working for our good. And it does us well to constantly be exploring what might be the good that God is working and how might I need to enter his shalom? And how might, what might that require of me to do so? So that is the shape of Christ's peace. So what is the scope? What is that? What is that? What is the, what is the, uh, the boundaries of his reign? In verse 7 we read, the, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. I love that many times throughout the Bible uh, we hear that, uh, that the, the, the kingdom boundaries are laid. Like it went to this river and to that border and to that border and that border. And I love this one where it says the prince of peace is going to come and his boundary will be eternally ever increasing. It just says of the increase, it's just going to continue on. If we think maybe, oftentimes I think of the Exodus journey of life, uh, and I think of just that story and place myself in that. I think the people of God for millennia have been encouraged to do that, so I would encourage you to read through it and think through life that way as well. In the Exodus journey of life, it seems like each new season of life is a different leg in that journey. 
And every new season, every leg of that journey is very uncertain. It's dark out there. And what is certain, though, maybe the only thing that's certain, is that God's got it, and we're not there yet. The promised land is coming, but I'm not sure the next step is the promised land. Every time and time again, you could ask my, my, my weary wife, my goodness, I'm like, the promised land is in five days. The promised land is next month. The, like, I mean, just all of life, you know, and I'm talking like Stanley Cup championships and that kind of stuff. Like, it's just ridiculous. It's like, okay, you're a preacher. Just, okay, this is sports. Don't do that. Like, that's not the promised land. Um, but I feel like we do that. We think of it, whether we say it or not. Like, our hearts are like, that's going to be it. That's going to be it. That's going to be it. And what we find out so often is God may have us actually on the literal 40-year journey in the wilderness in our own lives. The next stop may or may not be the promised land, but all we know is that we've got some steps to go. If we're thinking of the Exodus, which I hope we still are right now, we must be thinking of salvation as the deliverance from the kingdom of darkness and slavery to sin. I think that's where some of this goes wrong. We, recal- we have to recalibrate where we're at in this journey. I think a lot of times I think, I think that we are, we, we are going to be there, but if I am saved, if I am a Christian, really where I'm standing is basically at the other bank of the Red Sea, having just crossed it. Salvation is deliverance from slavery to sin, is deliverance from Egypt, slavery to sin. And as we are standing there, we look out and we say, we got that behind us, but we've got this big, scary wilderness to surpass. And it's going to take a lot of working out our faith or our salvation, the trajectories, the implications, the gratitude, how we turn that salvation, how we understand what that salvation requires us. It's going to take a lot of working out our salvation with fear and trembling every step of the way. And as we stand there on those shores, as we look into the dark and scary wilderness, we are comforted knowing that the peace of Christ is infinitely increasing in every direction. What goes out there before you? The peace of Christ. Verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So his peace extends outward. It goes out from him. And this is another great spot to, uh, to recalibrate. Because as it goes outward into your world, into, into your work, into your home, into, uh, into your extended families, into society, into politics, into everything there is. As his peace extends out, it also extends out to you and I. I think that's a part where I, where I, where I forget when I'm, in, this, uh, when I'm in, a, in a spot and I'm reading Isaiah 9 that I, that I forget that I'm not actually the center of the story here. Let's think about this picture that we have in Isaiah 9. We are in darkness. If we are celebrating because the light has come to us, verse 22 says, they will be thrust into thick darkness and a light has shone upon them. We're the ones in the darkness. We're not the light. The light has shone upon us. We've contributed somewhat to our state. We are in some of our state. So as Christ's peace extends out to the world around to us, to our situation, it also extends it deeply into our own hearts. We receive that as it goes out from Christ 
and into us. Remember, you and I are not the center of the light that radiates into darkness. When we shift the center of the story to King Jesus, we must admit that the frustration in our own lives are sometimes, and maybe even oftentimes, simply our temper tantrums that we're not the master of our universe. That we are not, that we are not, um, we don't even really have control uh, over our lives, uh, that we simply sit on an empire of dirt that the Lord frustrates time and time again to prove a point, just as he did with Pharaoh. The world does not revolve around you or I, but the peace of Christ comes as his kingdom penetrates our hearts. But even so, the peace of Christ extends inward, aligning your mind, your heart, your soul, your strength, and your will to the ways of God. We are simply pilgrims along the way. And what is required of us pilgrims is faithful obedience. Faithful obedience. A phenomenal book for people who are looking for peace, for people who have frustrated relationships and are trying to figure out how to put the peace of Christ into real world terms and practices. Um, there's, a, there's a Christian author, Ken Sandy, who wrote a phenomenal book called The Peacemaker. Uh, I'm going to quote some of that. It's real good. You should read it. Um, and he says, it's easy to accept your limits if you have a biblical view of success. The world defines success in terms of what a person possesses, controls, or accomplishes. God, however, defines success in terms of faithful obedience to his will. The world asks, which results have you achieved? That's how we would define our own peace. God asks, however, were you faithful along the way? Every step of the way, measure your heart. This is the work of the pilgrim. His peace is coming, and we walk faithfully in obedience to him along the way. Jesus is not only our righteousness, he is also our righteous example. He is the way to shalom. So we know the shape of Christ's peace, the scope of Christ's peace. How long does Christ's peace last? What is the span of Christ's peace? Verse 7, we read that he will establish, uh, that, that he, is, he is coming to establish and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. And then a fantastic little clause for you to search in your Bible gateway from this time forth and forevermore. Wow. He says that a lot throughout the Old Testament. From this time forth and forevermore. There are many things that are that way. But what does that mean for us right here? What does that mean for us today? From this time forth and forevermore. It means that the peace of Christ does not pause. God never stops dealing with sin and forgiving sinners. Even when you have a sweet season of joy, when it seems like nothing's wrong, God has not stopped calling people to repentance, forgiving sins, and atoning for them. Even in your lowest season where it seems like God is so very silent, peace of Christ does not pause. But even more than this, I'm going to put these together here, this eternal nature of, of that. There's, there's more. Why does it not stop? Well, one, because he doesn't get tired of it, but I think it's because he has an emotion towards us. Like there is an emotion that is driving God. It's the very last line of this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. 
had we been reading Isaiah up to this point, we would know that the Lord of hosts is very angry right now. He's very saddened right now that his people continue to turn from him. And the term Lord of hosts, uh, it refers to an Old Testament military term uh, that is like the commander of the angel army. Like he is the commander-in-chief and he's got all these Uh, all of these uh, angel soldiers uh, fighting for him. Zeal, uh, so this this is a Lord of hosts who is coming after us. He is doing so zealously. Zeal is an unceasing expectancy for a certain outcome. He is just going to continue doing this, an opening of his heart to continue doing this. Uh, It's like uh, that zealous child asking if we can open the presents yet, again and again and again and again. It'll be, it'll be later. This is, this is a common theme in our house. Zealous right now, common theme. Uh, it is like that zealous boss who tirelessly drives the project to completion, like feeling like he's micromanaging, but is zealous to make sure the project completes. And it's maybe like Simon the Zealot who wants the kingdom of God to come about so much that as soon as someone makes a misstep, he says, all right, let's draw swords, let's start a fight, let's get rowdy, bring about the kingdom of God, and Jesus has to kind of correct that. That zealousness, that eagerness, like, let's go. While we wait for the consummation of shalom, that is the completion of of our completedness, we've got a lot to work to do. This zealous God will continue to drive that completion. The zealous God will always be warning that shalom come about, that peace and restored relationship will be there. Again, this is, we find this in, in Scripture. Ephesians 2 says that God, does, God restores this peace through Jesus Christ, who not only breaks down the dividing wall of hostility between you and between God, but then he also, in that same chapter, only a couple verses later says, but he also creates in himself one new humanity in place of the two, so making peace. He breaks down that wall between you and God so that you and others can be joined together in Christ. This is weaving together that koinonia into a beautiful fellowship, into a beautiful tapestry of shalom. That's what the church is to be. And so, while we wait for this realization, this consummation of shalom, we've got a lot of work to do. You see, if the peace of Christ does not pause, then neither does the everyday opportunity of peacemaking. So, a couple of practical ways to go about this. How could the problem of darkness been solved? We get that in chapter 8 already. Is that if they would have feared the Lord of hosts, so I would urge you, fear the Lord of hosts. If they would have bound up the testimony, so I would encourage you to bind up the testimony. If they would uh, seal the teaching, they would protect it, they would guard it, they would say, this is it and nothing more needs to drive us forward. That is what I would urge you to do. Isaiah does these things and he's resolved. We read in chapter 8, he's resolved to wait on the Lord. He's resolved to hope in him as an expression of that peace that he has found. 
So what does this look like for us today? I think one of them would be, as Kid Sandy says, faithful obedience. Faithful obedience. As we look at justice, we have done wrong. The Lord, in His zeal, will fight for the right. He will bring about the right. And the question that we always have to be asking is, in this issue, in this, in this space, at this time, am I in the right or the wrong? Because it will be judged. And to take every step, not just the big, I was a sinner and now I'm not. Or I, was, I wasn't forgiven and now I'm forgiven. We, we sometimes paint these huge pictures that aren't as helpful to our own path of discipleship, our own path of holiness. In this day, in this moment, in this space, in this area, with this relationship, in this conversation, am I on the right or wrong according to God? And repent when you're not. And thank God that he has forgiven you patiently. And then move in that that gratitude towards the righteousness that he has that says, even though I am so terribly uh, uh, dark, I am so terribly wayward, my path continues to kick against your path. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for drawing near to me even when I'm kicking and screaming. And then lean into the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit who moves us, who purifies us, who enlightens our hearts that we might understand, that we might delight in the way of the Lord. Faithful obedience, that's what it is every day. Where am I at according to God? Where am I at standing? In the courtroom of God? Where am I at standing in the house of God? And where am I standing in the garden of God? I think those are great ways to ask. And this, how would, I, how would this pan out for me in those areas? And then to take that from your experience, because Jesus experiences the shalom and then he works from that, as we saw on his trial, to then go witness, go tell about it. This is what proclaiming the gospel is. There is a peace that surpasses understanding. Help people understand some of that. Help people experience some of that. Faithful obedience is one way that we take steps, one step after another in the wilderness. But then also, I would say stewarding shalom. And maybe specifically, stewarding it in the highs and the lows. So in the highs, it's easy to say, thanks be to God. You know, He has done great things. Well, sometimes it is. We get arrogant and we say, thanks be to my awesomeness. Uh, Make sure we don't go there. Make sure to give thanks to God when we have success, and not to our own skill that he has given, not to our own power that he has given, not to anything that makes us as, as, as big and important and powerful as Pilate, because we all know that he was given that. But then also, steward the bad. A specific thing here, when we go with peace, is, is steward your conflict well. I'm going to quote Ken Sandy again, because he's real smart on this. He says, lean into forgiveness. He says, forgiveness is a huge part of peacemaking. I'll read him now. This forgiveness may be described as a decision to make four promises. Here are your four promises that will help you understand if forgiveness is actually there in your heart. That you are able to say, I will not think about this incident. It's forgiven. We're done. I will not bring up this incident again or use it against you. I will not talk to others about this incident. 
I will not allow this incident to stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. And he goes on to say, by making and keeping these promises, you tear down the walls that stand between you and your offender. You promise not to dwell on or brood over the problem, nor to punish by holding the person at a distance. You clear the way for your relationship to develop unhindered by memories of the past wrongs. This is exactly what God does for us, and it's what he commands us to do for others. There's a whole lot that the Prince of Peace does for us. He lays that foundation for peace to even happen. He embodies, he exemplifies that peace that we might have away. Doesn't just say, go do it. He shows us how to do it. And then he says, go do it. And he gives us a command to do it. So as we journey, whatever that season is, wherever you have placed yourself in that, in that, uh, that picture, there's another leg of the journey whether that's in your family, whether that's in your work, whether that's with your church. And every one of those is going to give us an opportunity to say, God, go before me. Your peace is there. Give me the diligence. Convict me. Comfort me. Guide me in the steps toward peacemaking as an ambassador of the Prince of Peace. Let's go to our Lord now and ask him, to align our hearts to that peace. And he gives us such a good, potent word. Let's lean into his zeal as he accomplishes this for us. God, you are so good. You only do good. You are so good, you can assess what is good. You name things to be good. And every step you make, every action uh, you, uh, you perform, every promise that you speak, they all have a common theme, and that is good. But our hearts and our minds are aligned a little differently. And sometimes we don't hear your promises to save others, to restore others as good. Sometimes we don't, we don't understand turns uh, in our days as good. We need a, a, a divine perspective. We need to know. We ask that you bring us up to the watchtower where you are watching everything. To see a perspective outside of our own that we might understand. But even if you don't, and even when you don't, we ask that your spirit would give us peace that we would understand the task before us in the conversation before us in the activity before us and the responsibilities we have each and every day. Pray that you would make us ambassadors of your peace as your government and your peace extend forever.